Today I'm going to begin a new series of messages, a series that I'm calling The Fruit of Transformation. Everyone that I've ever met and everything that I've ever seen as I've traveled through life supports the fact that people appreciate the end result, or should I say the fruit of transformation. They appreciate when they get there. Now, the journey to get there, oh, well, that's another story. That can be hard sometimes. The first message in this series is a message I'm calling Transforming Grace. And what I want you to see through the message today is this. If you will feed on the transforming grace of God, then the transforming grace of God will feed through you. Now I want you just to take a moment here and just think about what I just said. So often we want to run ahead of God. Every time I train a new salesperson at work, within a few days they're going, let me get on the phones, let me get on the phones. I say, you're not ready. Let me get on the phones, I want to start earning money. No, you're not ready. And so sometimes we want to run ahead but friends, enjoy the journey. Enjoy this grace that is continuing to come into you. And as you continue to feed on this grace and in the process along this sojourn, along this journey, you begin to feed others. What do I mean by that? I'm not talking about handing people food on a corner, but it's not limited to just that. I'm talking about feeding them with your words. Feeding them with prayer when they need prayer. Feeding them with a touch when they need a touch. There's many ways to feed people. There's many ways to reach out and touch people. Speaking of transformation, men, come on. We love muscular bodies, don't we? We love muscular bodies. Women, you love hourglass figures, don't you? Oh, yeah. Students love. They desire prestigious honors, prestigious awards and acclimates. But there's a side of man that would prefer the benefits of transformation without the investment, without the commitment that it takes to reach such milestones at times. Why? Let's just be honest with ourselves, because it's hard work. It requires diligence and perseverance. Oh, but do we love transformation? We love transformation. Now listen to what I'm about to say. The culprit. How many of you know what a culprit is? The culprit. That's that thing that gets in the way. It can be short. It can be tall at times. It's not always the size of a Goliath. It can be little things. It can be a little hangnail. I'm telling you, the culprit that frustrates transformation is not the lack of knowledge that's available. That's not what does it. The primary culprit that frustrates transformation, listen to me carefully, is found in man's unwillingness to change. Now, I know that's a heart call. That's the primary culprit, the one that hinders transformation the most, is man's unwillingness to change. Man will find every excuse in the book. There's a lion outside. If I go out, he'll eat me in the street. 
Do you know that comes right out of the Bible? That's Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 13. That's the lazy man's excuse for not wanting to go to work. That's what he says. He said, I can't go to work today. There's a lion outside. That lion will eat me in the street. We also develop and foster mentalities. They get ingrained over the years. Mentalities that justify our climate of spiritual satisfaction. We say things like, I tried that once before. Oh, what's the old saying? If at first you don't succeed, what is it? Come on, come on. Yeah, come on. Everybody said that, hasn't they? But people, not necessarily with their words, but in their heart, in their mind, they've tried something. They feel like they've experienced a setback, maybe failure, whatever it may be. And they just said, that doesn't work. I tried that once before. Well, try, try again. How about this mentality? It costs too much. You know what I say to people? I'm in sales. You know what I say to people when they say it costs too much? I say, compared to what? They just say, well, that costs too much. I say, most things worth having today do. Oh, they say it costs too much, Mark. I love to come back with this one. How much too much do you think it is? And guess what? They never have an answer. It's just an excuse. That's all it is. Just an excuse. When we think about food, there's two extremes of food. There's organic, and then there's processed food. There's your extremes right there. What's the difference? One is teeming with nutrition. The other one is nutrition depleted. One, our bodies know what to do with it. The other one, body doesn't know what to do with it. One is better than the other. One costs more. And it's the same thing when it comes to allowing the message to come into us, whether it's the message of the finished work of Christ, the message of grace, or whether it's the message of the law. One will cost you more than the other. And I'm not talking about financially speaking. I'm talking about it will cost you in your emotional realm. My wife and I used to do health classes years ago, and we used to say it like this. You can pay the farmer, or you can pay the pharmacist. But in the world we live in, you're going to pay one or the other. There's no escape in that, friends. No one can eat bad food and end up with good health. Jesus himself said a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. In other words, he was saying, you can't get nutrition from a bad tree. Now, he's talking spiritually speaking, but do you see the metaphor? He said, if the tree is rotten at its root, he said it's going to produce rotten fruit. Likewise, when it comes to the spiritual realm, you cannot eat the law and regurgitate grace any more than you can eat a hot dog and throw up a hamburger. You can't do it. What goes into the man is what comes out. Jesus said that too. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, he says, the mouth speaks. So as I've said before, if you want to find out what's in a man's heart, just listen to the words. It's that simple. He says, it's going to flow from the abundance of the heart. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, whatever a man takes in, 
That is exactly what will flow from a man's thoughts and words. If you feed on the transforming grace of God, then the transforming grace of God will show up in your thoughts, show up in your words. In the mid-1980s, I heard a quote, but I've never forgotten that quote. And I looked it up yesterday. It was Benjamin Franklin. And this is what he said. He said, empty the coins from your purse into your mind and your mind will fill your purse with coins. I say a little bit different. I say it this way. Empty your self-importance into the transforming grace of God and the transforming grace of God will fill you with identity. Do you know what narcissism is? It's a personality disorder. It's a mental condition. It's a mindset by which a person has an inflated sense of their own importance. That's narcissism. I want you to make note that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. They didn't wash his. The narcissist is generally unwilling to change. He likes it just the way it is. Does this sound a little familiar? It should because once Christian doctrine congeals in the heart, most people will resist foundational change. I'm not talking about all the little changes you add on the branches. I'm talking at the root. Most people will resist foundational change once their Christian doctrine has congealed in their heart, even when they stare right into the heart, right into the eyes of grace and truth. They'll still say, no, thank you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, we find these words. Look what the Apostle Paul said. He said, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. I love the thought of that. I love the language there. Friends, our message is never stay home, do nothing. No, our message is be empowered by grace. Take in grace. And the automatic response is this is what's going to flow everywhere you go from your eyes, from your lips, from your touch. He says, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. What do you do with fields? Well, I guess you can do all kinds of things, but for, for the most part, things grow in fields. Whether it's grass or crops or flowers, whatever it may be, things grow in fields. And then he says, let me make it more plain. You're God's building. And guess what? God lives in that building. God lives in that field. And then the Apostle Paul says these words. He says, according to to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. He said, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. You know what the Apostle Paul was saying? He said, I came along when you had lost all your marbles, your little doggy brains all over the place, he said, I realized by talking to you for a couple of seconds, I needed to put a new foundation underneath of you. And he said, I laid a foundation under you. What was that foundation? It was Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. He said, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. 
And he said, another is building upon it. And that's what we're doing today. We're continuing to build upon the foundation that was laid by the early ministers of this gospel. We're continuing to build on top of that foundation. The foundation has not changed. That foundation is Jesus Christ crucified. Then he says, but each one must direct his attention to how he is building upon it. In other words, he's saying, don't be careless. Pay attention to this thing. Each one must direct his attention to how he is building upon it. Don't just sling stuff out there and see if it sticks. Preach Christ. Preach Christ alone. Cornerstone. For no one is able to lay another foundation. Do you look what he says there? For no one is able to lay another foundation than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Didn't I tell you? <laughs> That's where we were going with this thing. Jesus, according to that scripture right there, he is the foundation that we build upon. The problem we have today is the foundation is not Christ alone. It's Christ plus for so many people. No, friends, it's Christ alone. I'm so passionate about that. It's Christ alone. Jesus is the foundation of our transforming grace. The foundation is the most important part of the building, friends. And when the foundation is right, then everything that is built upon the foundation will be right also. You and I are righteous because our foundation is righteous. Let me say that again. We are righteous because the foundation is righteous. And our root system goes down into the foundation and up and out of that. Yes, we are righteous just like Christ. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, we find these words. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Now I want you to just think about what's being said there. We're in the Old Covenant right now. We're in the Old Testament. Let's see if we can make this a little more plain. Let's add to this scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 16. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. What is going on here? The Apostle Peter, he reached all the way back into Isaiah, and he said the same things that Isaiah said with one major difference. Isaiah said, whoever believes, but Peter said, whoever believes in him. In doing so, Peter revealed that the stone foundation was not an it. It was a him. It was Christ. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. And according to that prophecy we never need to be concerned about being put to shame isn't that what it says we never need to be concerned about being put to shame friends 
empty yourselves into God's transforming grace, then God's transforming grace will fill your minds with organic life. Do you know what organic means? It means life. It means living, fresh, transforming grace will heal your personality disorder and mental condition referred to as narcissism. Transforming grace will rid your mindset of its inflated sense of its own importance. My mother loved the color blue. When you went to her home, the moment you stepped in, blue couch, blue chairs. Before she moved into that house, the landlord said, Donna, what color do you want the walls painted? She said blue. She had a blue bedspread. She had blue dishes. She had blue towels. She had blue knickknacks. She had blue bedroom slippers, blue nightgown, blue robe. She loved blue. The woman was crazy about blue. I never seen anybody so crazy about a color. I'd say, Mom, there's more colors. Oh, I love blue, son. I love blue. She was the easiest person in the world to shop for. You didn't know what to buy Mom. You just get her something blue. She was happy. She really was. She was easy to shop for. And uh, I was thinking about that yesterday. And I thought, if my mother had have went to see a physician, a doctor, and if that doctor would have said, Donna, the science is in. If you'll go home and paint your walls red, you will live a minimum of 10 years longer. <laughs> my mother would have said, I'm not interested. She would have said, no, thank you. She would have said, I'm not interested in that much change. I find it just as disheartening as you do that so many lost people reject Jesus. I find it disheartening that so many of the saved people won't embrace this finished work message of transforming grace. Could it be that we are not presenting Jesus or grace accurately? Or could it be that their foundation was built upon something less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Perhaps their foundation was not built upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Changing a behavior or a belief system means that the narcissist must first admit that their behavior or their way of thinking is wrong. This is something that they are unwilling to do, unable to do. Likewise, many believers would rather criticize a difference in the way they believe versus someone else rather than conceding that maybe, just maybe, that person may have a deeper revelation of what they're talking about than I do. Maybe I've not discovered their revelation yet. The good news is, Depending upon the circumstances, of course, the narcissist can indeed be motivated to change. You see, once we get our little religious duckies all in their little rows, we don't like anything messing with their order. Several years ago, I literally gave the Holy Spirit permission to mess with my little religious duckies. And you know what he did? He rearranged them. He put them in perfect order. And guess what? I was the beneficiary of what he did. 
He put a second foot under my duck. You see, if a duck only has one foot, he'll swim in circles. It's like a boat with one oar. That's all you can do. I finally reached a point in my life where I was tired of swimming in circles. I was burned out from checking all my little boxes on my to-do list. I was worn out from grinding corn and running on the hamster wheel of performance in a way to please my father. These were all great motivators for change. Jesus began his ministry through a 40-day fast in the wilderness. That's Matthew chapter 4. During that 40 days, he had a lot of time to think. He had a lot of time to pray. He had a lot of time to meditate. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights. What do you suppose his first words are going to be when he comes out of that desert, out of that wilderness? I mean, remember, it's going to be something really powerful. It's going to be something very spiritual. What's the first word going to be? Well, the first word recorded is repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom there literally means the righteousness of God is at hand because his kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. Not a kingdom of law, it's a kingdom of righteousness. And he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is at hand. The word repent comes from the Greek word metanoia. It's a compound word. We all know this word by now. Meta, change. Noia means the mind. Put together, they form the words change the mind. The word repent is metanoia in the Greek, and it literally means change the mind. But the word meta, the prefix meta, means actually so much more than just change. It literally means in the Greek, go beyond Go beyond just change. Go beyond. Beyond what? Beyond natural thinking. There are more colors. Quit just thinking in blue. Go beyond. Friends, I think we need to go beyond in every way. Whether we're pastoring a church, being a friend, helping somebody out, doing some work for somebody. Go beyond what you're called to do. It's beautiful. Gets noticed. The word repent is made from the prefix re, which means back, B-A-C-K, or it means return. It's like if I was to say, I want a refund. That means I want to go back to where we were at when you didn't have my money. I want my money back. The prefix re means return. And the suffix pent means the highest place. That's why we get words like Pentagon, the highest place of security. Penthouse, the highest apartment. So when you take that word and you look at it, repent, it literally means return to the highest place. It's not such a bad word now, is it? I didn't grow up hearing that message about that. Repent means grab the Kleenex box, come to the altar. This is repentance. Cry for an hour. That's the only form of repentance I grew up with. Repent means return. Come on back, friends, to the highest place. Isn't that beautiful? Return to the highest place. The highest place is transforming grace. You can't get any higher than that. Do you understand what it means to fall from grace? 
Falling from grace doesn't mean that you've sinned and lost your salvation. It means that you have fallen. It means you have descended from the high place of grace and you have fallen into the lower region, which is the place of the law. You have traded Jesus's grace for the Mosaic law. And in doing so, you have inflated your own sense of importance to keep yourself right with God. You know what that's like, friends? I'm going to tell you what it's like. It just kind of came to my mind. Imagine from this point forward until Jesus comes, you had to grab an, an inner tube or a life raft and keep blowing it up. Plug it. Set it aside. Another one. Set it aside. Set it aside. You just wear yourself out. When you have this inflated sense of importance, that you're important because of what you do. Can't you see? You're blowing up life rafts all day long. And you need that life raft. And that's why you're doing it. You feel like you need it. You are a ducky with one foot, a boat with one oar, paddling in circles. You are a hamster wheel without a brake pedal, friends. Never realizing that the organic life of Christ and the opportunity to see good days is at hand. It's not out there in your future. It's at hand. Jesus said, repent for righteousness is at hand. Wake up to righteousness. Friends, Jesus said, repent. Jesus said, change your mind for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's up close. He's personal. Quit pushing everything out into the future. Quit reaching back into your past. Live in the present. Enjoy the present. Grace is at hand. Return to the highest place, the place of transforming grace. On the road to transformation, we discover things like persecution and suffering. Now, that can be a problem for some people, can it? Uh -huh. Because persecution and suffering, when we encounter them, our little brains almost always translate it as though we've done something wrong. Therefore, you know what our response is? We got to retreat. We got to return. We got to go back to where we were at. We're always trying to reach back. No, friends. There's no such thing as persecution. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus suffered. Paul was persecuted. Eleven of the twelve disciples were martyred for their faith. There's persecution out there. There's suffering on the road of transformation. So what happens is when we retreat, we return, what we're looking for is our previously established ways of thinking and performing. Because we go, that wasn't happening back then when I was acting this way or believing this way. So this must have been right. No, you're onto something right, I think, when this shows up. On the road of transformation, we discover perseverance and character building. The good news is that persecution and suffering and perseverance and character building have a fifth friend that walks that journey with them, walks that road of transformation with them, and that friend is hope. That friend is hope. It's the kind of hope that never disappoints us, a hope that leads us into a loving and organic revelation of just how righteous and loved we are by the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and this amazing Holy Spirit. We see this truth in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Look at these words. Therefore, since we have been justified, that means you have been declared 
righteous, the same thing Jesus said when he came out of the wilderness. Repent, for righteousness is at hand. Therefore, having been justified, declared righteous, declared innocent. I even like that word better because that's what it means. You are innocent in Papa's eyes. Innocent. Therefore, having been justified, look what it says, through faith. Where's the big checklist now? Not there, is it? Your boxes don't count, do they? No. You're justified through faith. Is that what it says? Am I in the word? Yes, I'm in the word. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. God has nothing against you. God loves you. He's at total peace with you. Why don't you just be at peace with him? Why don't you be at peace with your brothers and your sisters? Why not just be at peace with yourself? Like Valerie was saying during communion, sometimes we're the biggest condemners of ourselves. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Look at how it comes, though. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace. What kind of grace are we talking about? We're talking about a transforming grace. Therefore, having been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this transforming grace in which we now stand. And we boast not in ourselves, we boast in the hope. Remember that fifth friend that's walking the journey with us? We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Friends, just let the view and opinion that you have of just yourself that was concocted and your journey apart from God, just let that just fall off of you. You need daddy's view and opinion of you. Next scriptures. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. <laughs> what do you say, Paul? Did he say that? Did I misread that? Let me look at that again. <laughs> no, I read it right. He said, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because the journey's not over. And that is a natural part of kingdom living. You're going to suffer at times. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Didn't I tell you all these friends are walking this journey? I love this part here. It says, and hope does not put us to shame. Isn't that what Peter said? He said the same thing. When we're built on the right foundation, he said, we'll never be put to shame. And here is the Apostle Paul saying, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Beautiful, isn't it? When we think about transformation, we are faced with the reality that even though the transformation of our spirit is instant and complete, the transformation of our soul and our body takes time. There's this progression that's going on. That's why the scriptures instruct us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world's thinking, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know what grace does? You know what transforming grace does? It propels you beyond 
beyond the way you would normally respond in a situation like that. When you're gracious and you've been feeding on grace, then grace will feed others in their time of need, even in your own time of need. I have found out over the years, friends, that when I have had a deep need myself, when I've quit focusing on me and focused on others, it seemed like my need was met just in helping others. Transformation begins in the mind. Our hands will only do what our mind tells it to do. You say, Pastor Mark, how do you know that? Friends, I don't care who the greatest artist is that's alive today. You cut off his hand, his mind will still work. You take away his mind, his hand will not work. His hand has no creativity by itself. It needs the mind. Transformation begins in the mind. The ability to create begins in the artist's mind. If you were to remove the mind from the greatest orator on planet Earth, whether that's a man or a woman, I guarantee you without equivocation that that tongue would lay limp. That tongue would not move at all. Why? Because it needs the mind. Do you see how important the mind is? And when the scriptures tell us to transform the mind, literally it means come into agreement. Come into agreement with what daddy says. That's transformation. It's not just about taking in knowledge. It's about conforming to truth and grace. And he says, when that begins to take place, everything will begin to come into alignment. Change the mind and you'll change the man. Change the mind and you will change the tongue. You ever think sometimes, oh Lord, I, I just pray a cuss word never slips out of my mouth. I just pray that never happens. Because before I got saved, I sure knew them all, friends. I knew them all. But I've been saved over 25 years. And I cussed two times after I got saved. Shortly after I got saved, but not since. And that's because I said, Daddy, I want you to take this out of my heart. I don't want to do this. I don't want to blaspheme your name. I don't want to sound like a little rotten sewer on the street. And he said, son, he said, it's not that I just take things out. He said, it's about what you put in. See, that's the secret, friends. It's about what we're depositing in. It's beginning to transform. It begins to displace the issues of life that are lurking on the inside of you. Remember the words of Jesus when he said, repent. He said, change the mind for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Can I just be honest with you? Transforming grace can be a little awkward at first. How many of you can zero your life back a little bit and go, <laughs> this was a little bit awkward at first. Would you like to know why? It's because it runs counterintuitively to everything that we've been taught over the years. We've been taught to maintain our salvation through our own obedience, not truth. We've been taught that we can be disconnected from the vine. I had someone email me that earlier last week. You've got to watch it because you can be disconnected from the vine. Not true. We've been taught that like wine, we become more perfected as we age in Christ. Not true. More transformed? Yes. 
more perfected? No, you are as perfect as you will ever be in Christ. You do not get better in time. Religious alarms ring from every siren when you first come into the revelation of the finished work of transforming grace. So I understand, I'll be honest with you, I understand it can be a little bit scary. About a week or so ago, I went out to start my car to just let it warm up before I went to work early one morning. And I have one of those cars. You have to have the key in your pocket, but you just have to touch a button to start it. You don't put the key in the ignition. It's one of those fancier ones, I suppose. And I got the car up, and I got the heat going, and all of a sudden, I went to check my keys, make sure they were in my pocket, my coat pocket. And when I did that, I turned the alarm on. And so now my car, bum, 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 and it's kind of early in the morning. I don't want to wake up all my neighbors. Bum, bum, bum. My alarm's going off. Bum, bum. I'm, I'm, I'm digging for my keys, and, and I get them, and I know there's this button right on the side of the keychain there, and I touch that button. Now I got another alarm going off. I got two alarms going off. You see, I didn't realize it, but the car behind me, which is our other car, that's the one that's alarm was going off. But because they're both Volkswagens, they sound exactly the same. So now I've got two alarms going off. See, that's what happens when you come into this grace. You know what happens? Is what happens is it starts setting off alarms, religious alarms. And in your effort to silence maybe one of the alarms, you create a new problem. You turn on new alarms. <laughs> isn't that silly? That's just dumb, isn't it? Friends, as the slow drip of transformation and transforming grace begins to silence the emotional alarms of guilt and shame and fear and condemnation. You know what you'll find? You'll find that the old covenant alarm system makes its own rattle. It makes its own little siren. It makes its own little noise. Friends, listen to me. This is normal. And even though your emotions might say you're going crazy, you are not going crazy. This is very normal. Without the fruit of transforming grace, there would be no miracle. No miracle. When Jesus performed his first miracle, he not only turned water into wine, but he demonstrated his authority over the aging process. You see, we may have instant coffee. We may have instant tea. We used to drink instant tang when I was growing up. Some of you may remember that. But there's no such thing as instant fine wine. That would be an oxymoron, friends. You see, with wine, there has to be this fermentation process. Yet when Jesus turned water into wine, even the governor of the feast called it the best wine. Wine that he tasted and then gave to the bridegroom. Wine has a number of ingredients in it. But the single most important ingredient is time. That's the single most important ingredient in wine. And Jesus bypassed the procedures in the Winemaking 101 manual when he turned water into wine. I'm talking about the stage where the yeast is converting the sugars of fine wine grapes into alcohol and carbon dioxide through the process we call fermentation. That's what's going on. When Jesus turned water into wine, he didn't use grapes. When Jesus turned water into wine, he didn't use yeast. 
When Jesus turned water into wine, he didn't use sugar. And when Jesus turned water into wine, he didn't use time. Wow. You see, friends, with the exception of water, grapes and yeast and sugar and time are the main ingredients. Yet none of these were used. What do we learn from this miracle? We learn this. When Jesus turned you and me into a son or a daughter of God, he didn't require any of our helpful ingredients. He didn't ask, can I borrow a cup of sugar? No. He didn't say, hey, do you have a yeast packet? No. He didn't commission us to go pick grapes. No. In an instant, we became the new wine of the new covenant. When did this miracle take place? It took place, as we read the scriptures about that, it took place on the third day of the wedding feast. The third day, when was transforming grace truly made available to the world? It was on the third day after Jesus had died. It was on the third day that he rose again, and that's when grace became available in the way we know it today. Yes, God has always been the God of mercy and grace, but this finished work of grace began on the third day after Jesus had been crucified. At a time when our pitchers were empty and our stone-cold water pots were dry, everything was supplied for us through the vine. Salvation and righteousness are the fruit of transformation and they become ours only through the miracle of Jesus' transforming grace. We see the account of Jesus' transforming grace through the miracle at the wedding feast in Cana. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Son, they're out of wine. And look at Jesus' response. He didn't even say, Mom. He's not being disrespectful here, friends. It sounds like it, but he's not. He's calling her by what she is. Woman! He says, why do you involve me? I mean, most of us never liked the fact when mama was nearby and she commissioned us to do things, made us do things in front of our friends. None of us liked that, right? Didn't your kids give you a hard time, especially when you ordered them to do something and their friends were present? And you'd be like, Mom! Jesus said to her, Woman, why do you involve me? He says, My hour has not yet come. It's not time, Mom. His mother said to the servants, oh, she turned, okay. More than one way to skin a cat here. She looked at the servants. She turned to the servants. What did she say to the servants? She said, do whatever he tells you. How many of you know those are the last recorded words by Jesus' mother? You will not see her say another thing throughout Scripture. She didn't die the next day. She lived a long time after that. Nothing else is recorded. And so if we had to hang a hat on what Mary said, I think that's pretty good advice. Do whatever he tells you. Isn't that powerful? Nearby, 
stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. Kind of like the best man, okay? Take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. In other words, he wasn't present when this exchange was taking place, so he didn't realize where it had come from. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. Can you see this? He's got his arm around him. Come here, I've got to talk to you. He called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best wine till now. He was very perplexed. When you got married years ago, in these days right here, the wedding ceremony would last days, maybe a week or so. It wasn't like today, a few hours, you're done, everybody's home sleeping. No, it wasn't like that back then, friends. So the third day is where we're at now. They've been drinking wine for three days and they finally drank up all the wine. And so the best man here, the master of the banquet's like, sir, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And they bring that cheap stuff, that Boone's Farm, that Mad Dog 2020, all that cheap stuff. They bring that out after everybody's drunk so they won't even recognize it. He said, but there's something that you've done, sir. He said, you've saved the best stuff till now. He was in a conundrum. He couldn't rationalize this. He couldn't figure this out in his mind. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Why did Jesus perform this miracle? Was it because his mother put pressure on him? No. Was it because he felt like he was under some sort of obligation? Of course not. Was it because he wanted to gain a following? And he thought, man, if I just introduce a miracle right here at this big feast, I'm going to pick up a whole bunch of disciples today. I think I'll do it for that reason. No, friends, that's not the reason either. I believe that Jesus turned water into wine because the first thing he did is he looked into the spirit realm. Now he probably closed his eyes and he looked into the spirit realm and he had a dialogue with daddy and he saw his daddy serving the wine himself. He saw his daddy doing this creative miracle and he said, turns out, mom, you're right. It is time to do this. I mean, what else could have changed his mind? Don't bother me, my time's not come. To all of a sudden, two seconds later, say, fill the pots. Friends, what I just said is more than just my best guess at it. I think I've got a scripture that will prove what I just said. Let's look at the next scripture. John chapter 5 and verse 19. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. You see that? So Jesus looked at those pots and said, there ain't nothing I can do about this. I can't do anything by myself. I need daddy's help. You can't do anything by yourself. You need the father's help. 
He said the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. So in that spirit realm, he saw his father give orders to fill the water pots. And he thought, well, that's easy. My daddy says it's okay. He saw that. Jesus said, because whatever the father does, the son also does. Man, isn't that wonderful news? Isn't that beautiful news? Isn't that powerful news? Whatever we see the father do, we can do because we are sons and daughters of God. We got to go beyond natural thinking. Marty, you were telling me the story the last two weeks in a row now, and it just came back to my mind just now about a, was he a brother-in-law? What was he? Her son's brother-in-law who had COVID and on his deathbed, according to the doctors, and the doctor said, unplug everything. There's no hope for this man. And Marty rose up and said, whoa, what I see the father do, I can do. Not on my watch. Not on my watch. And they began to pray. She probably wasn't the only one. Many people began to pray. When the doctor said, disconnect everything, dump out the water pots, Marty was saying, no, fill the water pots. I'm going to serve this man life. And that man today is out of the hospital, correct? He's out of the hospital. Friends, I'm telling you, we disconnect from truths too easily. We need to look into the spirit realm and we need to see what Papa is saying, what Papa is doing. That's exactly what Jesus did. He said, I don't do anything, not one thing. I don't first see or hear my Papa do or say. Isn't that a beautiful principle? That's the truth, friends. Did you notice that the wine didn't have to perform to become? It was just transformation. Just like at the Jordan River, when the Father spoke the words, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus didn't have to perform that day to get the Father to say that. The father was pleased with him. Why? Because he's the father's son. He's pleased with you as well. At Jesus' word. At his word. Come on. We got to take him at his word. At his word. At Jesus' word. The water was turned into wine. All the guests were impressed with the wine. Sadly, friends, they were not equally impressed with the vine. The one that supplied the wine. Quit drinking your little intoxicated Kool-Aid, friends, and think about Christ, the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, the vine, and the Father who's the vine dresser. Friends, one of the nuggets of this miracle is that Jesus demonstrated the beauty of His transforming grace even unto a people who had no interest in spiritual things. That's what grace looks like. Why would you waste your time doing all this? They're not interested in you, Jesus. This is what grace looks like. Seems like, wow, if you're going to do your first miracle, at least be like Peter, preach to 3,000, let them all get saved. No, Jesus said, no, I'm going to turn some water into wine and not even get thanked for it. It was the inauguration of his ministry. This is what grace looks like. 
Jesus demonstrated his ability as creator. Creator, even without our ingredients, even without our muscles, even without our hourglass figures, even without our prestigious degrees. He did this for us when we were one-legged ducks, when we were boats with one oar. This is the power of grace, friends. When Jesus turned the water into wine, guess what? It took on a different color. It took on a different fragrance. It took on a different appearance. It took on a different taste. It took on a different texture to the palate. Friends, we all may be different colors. We may all have different tastes. Some of our jars may hold more water than other jars. I'll just throw that one in there. But the one thing that we have in common is that we are all changed in the same manner. We are changed by Jesus' transforming grace. The master of the banquet called the bridegroom aside and privately had a conversation with him. He whispered these words into his heart. He says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. The master of the ceremony had no idea that it was the transforming grace of Jesus that was responsible for the choice wine. He had no idea. The words saved the best till now speaks of the new covenant. Can't you see that? It's the covenant that bears the fruit of transformation. It's the covenant that strips away excuses and frustrations. It's the covenant that infuses us with righteousness. It's the covenant whereby everything is supplied. Oh, not through the wine, but through the vine. It's the covenant with a sure foundation. It's the covenant that bypasses the fermentation process and it does not get better with time. It's an organic covenant, one that is teeming with life. You see, friends, before Jesus took his last breath on the cross, he cried out with everything that he had on the inside of him, the words, It! is finished. And then our precious cornerstone died on the cross. His lifeless body hung naked yet unashamed. And as Jesus hung there, a Roman soldier came by and he took a corkscrew and he thrust it into Jesus' side. Would you like to take a guess at what came out of Jesus' side when he pulled that corkscrew out, friends? The scriptures say it was blood and water. Just like at the wedding feast in Cana. The best had been saved until now. Friends, the greatest miracle that Jesus ever gave us was not at Cana. 
It was at a cross and then a risen tomb. Jesus' miracles would begin and end with blood and water. I'm talking about the blood of the new covenant. The covenant that cleansed us by the washing with water through the word. The covenant of Jesus Christ. The covenant that flows with transforming grace. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from this message today are these. So many people are like a duck with one foot or a boat with one oar, spinning in religious circles. They have spent their entire Christian lives grinding corn and running on the hamster wheel of performance in an effort to please the Father. I've got a message for you straight from God. He's already pleased with you. You don't have to go through charades. You don't have to work your fingers to the bone. He's already pleased with you. You don't have to build muscle. You don't have to change your figure. You don't have to win any prestigious awards and honors and bring them to him. While we were yet sinners, daddy's love was poured out for us and poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. Transformation of our spirit is instant and eternal. The transformation of our soul, it takes time and it's progressive. Our unwillingness to change is the only culprit that frustrates transformation. I can promise you without equivocation that if you will feed on the transforming grace of God, then the transforming grace of God will feed through you. Friends, under the law, our personality disorder, our mental condition, and our mindset, I'm talking about the one that inflates our self-importance, all that comes to the surface under the law. I want you to make note that the master of the ceremony, he thought that the bridegroom of the wedding feast was the one who was responsible for the choice wine. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus didn't even correct him. He let him steal his thunder, friends. Mary knew who was responsible for the choice wine. Oh, the servants knew who was responsible for the choice wine. The disciples knew who was responsible for the choice wine. And Jesus knew who was responsible for this wine. But Jesus was so secure in his Father's love that there was no need to demand his sense of importance. Do you see that? When you are secure in Papa's love, you won't have to toot your horn. You won't have to feel important. Jesus was so secure that he didn't walk up and go, hey guys, are you enjoying this wine? Because you were out. All you had was water. But I created the first miracle of my ministry and you've got the best wine now, friend. I did that. No, he let them take the credit. Isn't that awesome? This is what transforming grace looks like, friends. We let Jesus take all the credit. Friends, Jesus laid the foundation in Zion. He is the stone, the tested stone, 
the chosen stone, the precious stone, and the cornerstone. Jesus is our foundation. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. We must change our minds. We must be willing to go beyond natural thinking and be willing to allow the sweet Holy Spirit to rearrange the order of our little religious duckies because He'll get them right every time. Falling from grace doesn't mean that you have lost your salvation. It means you have lost your understanding of the new covenant. And what have you done? You have fallen back to performance. You've lost your understanding of the new covenant. And therefore, you have fallen. You have descended from the high place of grace to the lower place of performance and law. Friends, may I remind you the words of Jesus when he said, very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Friends, that single truth is the essence of transforming grace. Daddy, I just so praise you and I so thank you that we can just get our religious stuff out of the way and we can look at the vine. We can look at the true vine. That's what Jesus said, I am the true vine. And Father, because we're connected to the true vine, we have the benefits of the vine. It's not the fruit that supports the vine. It's the vine that supports the fruit. Throughout this message, Daddy, we see the new covenant. We see it so plainly. We thank you, Father, that we give you permission. We give you the liberty. We give you the freedom to rearrange the way we think. Sometimes, Daddy, we grew up and they put a foundation under us that was more than just Christ alone. It was Christ plus. No, it's never Christ plus. It's Christ alone. The chief cornerstone. The precious cornerstone. The only cornerstone. And when we're built on that foundation, that truth, then our root system goes down into that. It's a vine. That foundation is a vine. And we extract the organic life and the organic nutrients from that. And we are better off, Daddy. So, Father, thank you so much. Thank you, Father, for the revelation that is beginning to proliferate across the nations. Proliferate in our own hearts. Take ground in our own hearts. Jesus said, Return! to the highest place. And that highest place is transformed in grace. In Jesus' name, amen.